Welcome to Savage Minds. Today's guest is Paul Cockshot. Paul was born in Edinburgh and spent much of his childhood in West Africa, where his parents were working as doctors. He studied economics and computing and has worked both in the computer hardware industry and as an academic at Scottish universities. He has published lots of stuff on computing, economics, and socialism. His books include Computation and Its Limits, Towards a New Socialism, and How the World Works. Paul runs a YouTube channel of lectures on economics and materialism. Paul, welcome to the show. My first question to you is this. How is it that the project for a continued collective existence, especially in this horrible year, where our existence has been called up for potential cancellation, becomes demoted to un unimportant, while labor is also that which divides us along social lines? We would think in 2020 that the division of class would be more apparent than ever, especially in this horrible year where people are either sheltering in place because they can afford to, or those who are considered the frontline workers necessary for our human survival. Another guest uh, in one of my COVID interviews with researchers, one of them pointed out, Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford pointed out that in fact, the way that even COVID has been you know, mitigated has further exacerbated class lines and it's created this new class of the frontline worker. So of course, we go back to class issues, which you reference throughout your book, but class issues are extremely important today. And I would think that class issues today would be on the frontier of discussion, not on the back page because of everything we're living through. I don't really think they have been pushed to the back page. I think it has actually brought it more to the forefront of political consciousness than um, would normally have been the case. Where, where do you see this? Well, it is emphasized to the um, political class that there is a hierarchy of different degrees of essential activities. That uh, the provision of basic food and power come above various business activities such as running um, pubs and casinos. That has come out true, but the people who provide the work are still the same class as usual. Like we, we haven't yes. really addressed the, the details of class. We've gone to the, the tree dressing and the decorations of class, but we still never really got back to discussing who's the one who can afford to shelter in place and who can't. You know what I'm saying? Well, I mean, that... That is constantly appearing as an issue on the BBC when people are being interviewed. It, it, when the BBC interview local mayors, for example, or they interview um, epidemiologists, the, these are issues which are constantly being raised. The mayor of Manchester, uh, Andy Burnham, was repeatedly raising the issue that 
it's impossible to have an effective lockdown when a large group of people can't afford to take a day off work. Uh, and that if you, you can't have self-isolation working, if people are unable to, to survive without uh, going into work every day, you, you get other people on, on the news yesterday saying, how can someone who's heavily in debt afford to take time off? So, I mean, it's, it's not that uh, these things aren't being raised. They are being raised and they're being raised primarily at the level of local government and independent experts or independent spokespeople uh, talking about it. Uh, what's noticeable is the absence of a clear set of demands at the national political level related to it, um, which I think in, in Britain at the moment is related to the um, disorganization of the Labour Party following Car Starmer taking over. Well, that too, although earlier on this year, around April, May, one of the MPs proposed, uh, you know, some actions to help out renters. One would have thought this could have been done months earlier. But we see how capitalism is being treated with all these negotiations, where in the first days, mortgages were handled, not a peep about renters. Renters came out months later, right? Yes, yes. I mean, rent has been... There has been an implicit set of neoliberal assumptions which have not really been taken on by any of the political parties. That is that the certain categories of income are not to be questioned and rent is one of them. Um, the, the, to an extent, they have questioned payment to the banks because they imposed... Um, uh, debt holidays um, but the debt holidays don't cancel stop the debt building up they just mean you don't have to make the interest payments at this point and it it, it the there's a whole set of neoliberal assumptions which have built up since the 1970s um, which are so deep in people's consciousness that they don't even think of how to take actions which would question them. So it's never, it never entered into their consciousness in the early stages of the epidemic, it never entered into the consciousness of European politicians that they could take the kind of radical measures that the Chinese took to actually totally stop the transmission and eliminate it as a, a disease. Yeah, unfortunately, those days are long gone. Even, you know, the most optimistic scientists say there's no chance of getting this to zero. So here we are looking at these, every country in their own turn is doing various forms of lockdown and clearly it's only helping a little. The, here in Scotland, they had it almost down to zero. And the report, a report came out a week or so ago saying that if they had continued with the policies they had beyond July and they had stopped all travel in and out, they'd have got it down to zero and prevented any further transmission. But the assumption 
that the travel industry is so essential and is so inbuilt that they, they weren't willing to contemplate. They didn't even consider stopping all travel. It's mind-boggling this to me, <laughs> simply because we're now paying for it and they're doing these, you know, uh, the lids on the kettle, so to speak, uh, you know, blocking the counts, so, so they think, and it's on and off again, on and off again. I presume we'll be in this until April again. I think so, yes. It raises serious issues, Paul, because I'm, I was thinking about your book all this time because I got your book right before lockdown and I was like, oh, you know, really struggling to have time to even eat or sleep in February and yes, yes. March. That was a horrible time for many of us. But what, what really struck me were our conversations we've had over the last uh, even two years over the issue of immigration. And I thought a lot about this because... Your book, uh, the second chapter, I believe, focuses on the pre-class economy. Yeah. And I kept thinking about this in relation to what's going on this year with all these various virus mitigation techniques across the planet. I wanted to know if you could perhaps um, discuss what the pre-class economy is and explain it to listeners here who might not have that kind of vocabulary for uh, economics. And when did pre-class economy um, die out in class jump in? Because I think this is one of those links that might be helpful for us to understand really what's going on today in terms of the discussions that you raise in your book, analyzing the, the heart of your book is really an analysis of both capitalism and socialist economies. And I'd like to hear about how you see this in the scope of what we're even living today. Well, we're living at the moment through a, what is, is a short-term crisis, the, the, the crisis of COVID. But this short-term crisis, if you read Turkin, is a characteristic type of crisis which occurs repeatedly as class societies go into um, a stage of decline, a stage where they're pushing the carrying capacity of the environment and the population rises to levels uh, which are threatening the carrying capacity of the environment and class differentiation becomes even more extreme. Under those circumstances, one of the factors which historically has kicked in um, has been increase in epidemics and pandemics. He, he shows this very clearly uh, with a number of historical incidences. So in one sense, what we're, we're going through at the moment is a temporary uh, phenomena, a short-term phenomena. On the other hand, we're on the verge of a much bigger crisis, um, which is analogous to the crisis of the 10,000 BP before present, the, which was the last time that there was a radical climate change, a climate change of, uh, you know, if you look at the Greenland ice cap record 
uh, 14 to 20 degree rise in temperatures. Now, you, you were asking about class society. Well, why, why is this relevant? Well, the 10,000 BC is about the shift from the Mesolithic to the Neolithic. It's the shift from an economy based on hunting and gathering in which no significant class differentiation can arise because people, insofar as they have to follow herds to hunt and rove around, can only have as much private property as they can carry on their person. And you therefore get societies which are highly egalitarian in their um, this division of resources. Um, in, in, in the late Mesolithic, you start to see the, the formation of some kind of um, fixed resources which people could get some inequality from. The, the, if you get the establishment of people building fish traps or um, monopolizing a particular area of um, favorable land as some of the excavations in North Yorkshire have had. Um, but th this is very minor. It's not until you have agriculture that basically that you can get a transition into a, a type of class society. And even that appears to have taken of the order of 5,000 years, that there was a very long period of agricultural society with very limited class division. Um, and the key, as far as I can see, I mean, it's very difficult to make sense of this, both because of the paucity of, of real evidence and the variety of different theories there are. But as far as I can see, the key factor is a shift in the population density relative to the carrying capacity of the land. Uh, so long as during, if you take the, the, the first towns are formed about immediately after the deglaciation of 10,000 BC, okay? Or 10,000 BP. Immediately after that deglaciation, you get this radical change in the climate. You, the humans have hunted to extinction the megafauna. The megafauna under the, the change in the environmental conditions get hunted to extinction. The old mode of life becomes impossible. So people start to cultivate uh, grains. Now people had long known that you could, that seeds grow and all the rest of it, but it wasn't do it worth doing anything with it. So they start to cultivate grains and you get the first settled communities within a very short time after the ice sheets melt. Now, that doesn't immediately lead to class society. If, you, if people look at the ruins of Katahoyuk, there's no evidence of income differentiation in the population. Um, and there's certainly no evidence of, of, of patriarchy in the archeological remains. And why does all this arise? It doesn't arise until the possibility for surplus population to disseminate itself over previously virgin land comes to an end, at which point 
actually holding land becomes a an exploitable resource when land is is essentially unlimited you can't exploit people by land ownership but once it becomes limited then a landowning class can establish itself you get various um you know, complications in, in the case of uh, the growth of land landowning classes in Russia in the Middle Ages and things, but leave that out. Then basically the issue is, is are there re fixed resources which could have been monopolized by a, a class of landowners? And that didn't exist until a, a certain population density had been reached. And what happens as a result of having land then when you have a person that owns most of the land does that in itself naturally form class or is there something else also that's necessary well the ownership of land is secondary to to the, the forming of class the forming of class the, what they want is not the land they want people working for them uh and you get an an, a, an intermediate stage where you have a, a unfree labor whilst it's still possible to emigrate. Um, so in a, a landowning class can only establish itself as a, uh, as a, a commander of labor, labor in the presence of virgin land by the use of unfree labor. And you see this, um, Turkin shows that it, it, sorry, it's not Turkin. Sorry, I'd have to check who it was. It's it's shown shown in the case of say serfdom in England that once the population density had reached a certain level, they could get rid of serfdom because at that stage the threat of sowing some evicting someone from the land was enough to force them to pay rent. So long as people could migrate somewhere and set up farm themselves, the only way you could force them to pay rent was to ensurf them and tie them to the land and prevent them moving. And again, if you consider the, the European settlement of the Americas, the only stable way that the European landowners who set, settled there could establish a population working for them was by reinstituting slavery because the possibility was always there for people to migrate to, to as yet uncultivated land. So to establish a class system in America, they either had to have uh, slavery or if you take New York State and New Jersey and places like that, they tried to establish feudal relations. They had feudal tenure but it was very difficult to establish that in the, in the presence of the ability of people to move further west. What do you mean by feudal tenure in terms of how this relates to the slave class? In the 1600s, settlement in um, parts of New England still occur, and also the same applied in Quebec, still used European uh, feudal landowning relations whereby you would have a feudal ten, a feudal superior and a feudal inferior, and someone who was the inferior was under an obligation to make 
dues in the form of rents or other rents in kind to a landowner. Now that, that was the long established class system in Europe and they tried to transplant it to North America, but it could only be effectively transplanted in those areas where the initial labor of clearing land, clearing forests was so high that it was worth someone paying a rent to a feudal superior rather than um, migrating west. And so this meant that in places in New England, for instance, that the attempt to foment feudalism ultimately failed because of the, even the vast expanses of options and lands to go to? Eventually it failed because of the, the, um, the ability of people to move west. But it, it was a factor that is, is elided in most histories of the American Civil War, that, the, that this set of relations existed and that the, um, the feudal tenants tended to support the monarchy and were against independence because they could see that their landlords were pro-independence. So that both feudal tenants in, in New England and um, black people in the South tended to be pro-monarchist and against independence and go to the loyalist side, whereas the uh, landlord class was on the independent side. It had a political impact at that time. And then the chapter after you look at the pre-class society jumps right into slavery. What's the link then between the pre-class economy and this economy based well, on- This is the point I'm saying, is, is that if effective um, establishment of intense exploitation was difficult if you, uh, unless land was restricted. So that slavery is one of the first forms in which um, exploitation occurs because by unfree labor, you can constrain people to work for you, even if in principle, they could move off somewhere else and farm. So, but the, I mean, this was a constant uh, problem in the late Roman Empire that um, people would flee and set up, I think they're called Sicarii, I'm not sure, um, it set up uh, free, free settlements uh, away from the, the area under the control of the slave owning class. But it was, so they actually had, had to physically put people in chains to prevent this. Now, what sustained slavery was warfare. Uh, uh, initially, the first slaves are captives. And once you have a highly developed state, you can then engage in warfare on a large scale and capture vast numbers of people. And the rapid expansion of the Roman state into an empire was based on its ability to enslave a significant fraction of the populations that it conquered and put the, them onto the, the Italian slave market, therefore boosting the labor supply beyond what it would be able to have with, by natural reproduction. Well, your, um, your book makes mention that slavery came, it waxed and waned throughout history. But what was more stable was the dependence upon a peasant economy. 
So you, you make that contention that slavery had its moments of coming and going, but peasant economies were more of the staple. Why is that? And how does this interact with then the migration classes? Well, the, a peasant economy is a, a mode of production that is capable of self-reproducing. The peasant families both have access to the land and instruments of labor by which they can feed themselves. And they, they are capable of generating at least a balance or a surplus of population. Um, now, when it generates a surplus of population, the exploiting classes increase the level of uh, exploitation and eventually lead to a, a cyclical crisis. But the point is that, un, that, that slavery was incapable of reproducing its population. It was a parasitic system that depended on, on wars to d deliver fresh captives to, to the slave market. The, the slaves were sexually segregated, weren't allowed to, to reproduce themselves, and therefore there was a constant need to capture more people. And it, when the supply of slaves drives up, then there is a, a, a pressure on the land-earning class to, to transfer their slaves into essentially peasants by allowing them a plot of land that they can settle on as a family so long as they continue to deliver labor service to the landlords. So you get the transition once the, the labor supply from war and conquest dries up. So holding on to land seems to me to be one of the major controls here, even to the present day, which keeps people completely disempowered from a certain kind of, especially 2020, uh, a certain kind of coaxing along at the bare minimum, right? Like those people, even poor people around the world who have a plot of land who can afford to grow their own food in the month of lockdown, will not have arguably starved to death. But the many yes. people renting flats in New York, London, what have you, who have zero access to this, had to personally put themselves in a quote unquote, you know, frame of terror, of uh, infection, in order for them to get sustainable resources, you know, for eating, yes. arguably yes. clothes. And, and so this is fascinating to me because as, as a child, you know, um, I had no idea what this landowning was all about, but I heard people saying land, you know, you can't go wrong with it. It'll always improve in value. And it's the only good investment to make, right? So I grew up with these like little blips and quotes that I heard throughout the world, um, myself not being at all interested in those kinds of things. And then here we are, you know, um, we, we grow into adults and we realize that we can throw away money at a, a landlord's, uh, effectively his pocket or her mortgage payments, but we are throwing money somewhere always unless we're the landowning class, right? So this would mean that exploitation, as you've just described it, from the slavery classes to the peasant classes, would rely upon the dispossession or the lack of access to land and housing. Well, the, it's, it's not quite as simple as that. 
Um, okay. It relies on the threat of dispossession. It, for it to work, the, the peasants actually have to be on land and able to farm it. Um, but in order to ob obtain revenues, the landlord class has to be able to threaten each individual peasant with uh, eviction if he doesn't pay his rent or they don't pay their rent. But then we have a, a model in history that also functioned as sort of a go-between between slavery and renting, sort of the indentured servitude model. And that seemed to have some, um, in certain countries like Trinidad and Tobago seemed to have some long-term uh, benefits to those indentured servants because at the end of two years working for it, I went back and looked at historical papers for an article I wrote a few years ago and I was able to see that, you know, some of these folks would come over, have to work and pay back their transport from what might be today Pakistan or India, but they were... Uh, became landowners rather quickly, even in terms of today's economy. Like you would never see a college graduate with $80,000 of debt to a U.S. You know, institution for their bachelor's degree in which they can't find a job anyways, and they will still be in debt 20 years later, likely. Yes. So in a way, I was reading these details, I was thinking, well, I would have been an ind indentured servitude comparatively looks great, you know? Why did that system just f fail in terms of it provided too much benefit to the recipients? I'm not an expert on what happened. I've never studied the class relations in the West Indies, so I can't, can't really comment on that. Okay. Um, well, then tell me why is it that the peasant and the slavery models functioned and yet with all that we know since, especially post-World War II, we are aware of or you know we're sold as a society of the benefits of capitalism and each person man woman for his own her own and you can build up your own capital and be in charge of your own life and now here we are skip another 40 years from thatcher to countries where a vast percentage of the working market are freelance entrepreneurs these startups all these words that people have been given the past 10 years ad nauseum. And there seems to be less worker stability than ever in many countries. Uh, tax rates for people who are freelancers in most countries is higher than if they were a dependent worker. What's gone on then with the labor market? Why this model of independent contract as quote unquote more successful or is it just better for businesses? I, I think this is a... Um a consequence of the movement of capital to China and the Far East. Um, the Western capitalism went through a crisis from the 1970s to the start of the 80s. And that crisis was fundamentally due to the fact that you'd had, you had very rapid capital accumulation in, in the Western world rapidly rising production, rising living standards. And this was done on top of a population which was shifting from being a peasant population to being an industrial population. If you look, take countries like France and Italy, 
1945, they still had a majority of their population that was agrarian. And there was a lot of scope for capitalist industry to greatly improve productivity by expanding mass production industries in all these areas. So you have the, the post-war 30-year, you know, Tronglerios, etc., um, founded on that basic shift in the, the mode of production from peasant families to people working in Fiat, Citroen, etc. And a huge increase in, in productivity and change in the mode of life. If you think of some of these, the, the Jack Tatty films from the period, they're very uh, good at showing this. Now, or, or if, if you read some of H.G. Wells's novels from around uh, his early novels, around 1905 or so, 1910 or so, you, again, they, they portray this, this process taking place. Um, and that reaches its limit in the late 60s, early 70s, when the reserves of labor have been used up and the rapid accumulation of capital means that workers are in a very strong bargaining position and are able to increase the share of national income going to labor and reduce the share of national income going to capital. Now that was seen as a terrible lesson by the um, property classes that this was a disastrous situation to get into and in the neoliberal period their get out was the fact that suddenly uh, China opened up for investment from from the late 70s and they could shift their investments to China they could shift their mass production to China so the decline in employment by large industry in Europe is a side effect of the, of the deliberate shipping of that large industry um, to areas of the world where the, the migration from the countryside was still taking place. And that, that means two things. On the one hand, job opportunities from in large firms decline and on the other hand, you get a, because of the de 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 decreased bargaining position of, of labor relative to capital, you get an increasing concentration of wealth. This is well documented in Piketty's book. And the increasing com concentration of wealth means that there, there is more opportunity for servant classes. Uh, people who are basically providing services to the wealthy. And this tends not to be large scale. Look at the mass of people engaged as cycle delivery people. This strikes me as a really telling indicator of the social process that has gone on. The cycle delivery was something that was common in the, the first decade of the 20th century at a time when class polarization was extreme. 
and the wealthy could afford a lot of time by the propertyless um, to be devoted to them. So they could, they could afford all sorts of servants. They afforded household servants. They afforded um, delivery boys on bicycles, etc. With the repolarization of wealth that's occurred, all this reappears. Things which, when I was a child, were taken as a sign of the most awful backwardness of, um, say, Hong Kong, that they had rickshaws pulled by bicycle people on 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 essentially a bicycle at the front human powered delivery this was taken as a a sign of what terrible poverty there was and what are we having now we're getting the same thing and it's because of the increasing polarization and the increasing part of the population who have absolutely nothing well paul embry mentioned this to me when i was discussing uh labor rights and, and immigration, because he said that one of the things that we need to pay attention to is the fact that now uh, big businesses, corporations are not investing in technology as once upon a time they did. And he uses the example of the excess today of, of hand wash, people who wash cars by hand. And yes. how, you know, 20 years ago, there were more machines out there to do the job. It's true. Even where I live, you see a lot of these machines that were spanking new around 2000 dead today and not even, not even maintained because there's this now new economy for very basic services as if we'd skipped the last 70 years. Yes, it, it, it's, it's a consequence of, of polarization of wealth. I mean, what, I mean, Adam Smith says money is the power to command the labor of others. And what, when the upper class can command more labor as a share of the national income, they, they will command it in all sorts of menial forms. The, the boom of the, 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 um, well, it really started in the late 30s, but in Britain, it didn't start everywhere in the late 30s. But the, the boom from the late 30s to the um, 1970s was based on mass production and raising general consumption levels of the mass of the population. And it's quite different from what exists now. Well, what exists now is uh, with COVID, it's one of the most obnoxious statements I've heard of the year was someone saying how much money they have saved eating out. Of course, that demonstrated to me a complete lack of, of any kind of economic or social consciousness because the masses who can't even afford to eat in should be the greater question. And again, you know, uh, I sat reading daily all these reports and I was really frustrated with the fact that governments took so long to address rent. And I mean, Italy didn't address rent until after the summer. New York addressed rent unofficially by groups of students and, and others coming together demanding for rent forgiveness, which never happened. Um, they just, like in England uh, and the rest of the UK, they had a, a rather a forbearance period when landlords could not evict anyone. Well, that ended recently in the UK it ended. 
yeah, I mean, they, they ought to be, they ought to be saying um, for the du duration of the pandemic, rent is not due, no, and doesn't accrue. But they, they, they are desperate to protect the interest of, of um, the property owning classes, so they don't do that. It doesn't even occur to them to do that. Exactly. And this is the kind of unconscious that I'm finding rife within the quote unquote left. I have to put left in quotes all the time because a lot of people call themselves leftists and they're nothing of the sort. They're just re Republican types who like the idea of opening up borders. But um, you, you start to mention house ownership or when I you know, suggest that people who own more than one home should have to give it to someone else <laughs> who doesn't have a home. Of course, I'm, I'm immediately decried as some kind of Marxist or socialist or whatnot. But at the same time, these are arguments that it seems the class owning population does not even consider, not even during a global pandemic. It, it, it struck me as very odd that banks were very quick to forgive late payments on cards, credit cards, and late payments on homes, or no payments on homes. And the renters, the poorest, I mean, if you can afford to buy a home, yeah, yeah. you should be maybe number two on the list of who isn't supposed to pay something, because number one on the list definitely should be renters. I mean, the history shows, though, that this only, you only get anything done on this when tenants organize rent strikes and refuse to pay. You, 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 the, you never get a shift on this unless there is organization to, to stop payment. Now, the problem with the pandemic is it makes it very difficult for people to organize. Um, uh, during the 1980s, we were very effective in Glasgow at preventing the, the, the poll tax, which was essentially a a payment everyone had to pay but the method of enforcement that was used for the poll tax was a method of enforcement which had originally been developed for forcing people to pay their rents that that you you would get um someone would apply to the court and what was called the queen's messengers at arms would then arrive at someone's house and distrain their property and take it off uh, for sale. Uh, I mean, this was, so long as the, the situation only affected a few people individually, occasionally, that system of coercion worked very effectively. When under some other circumstances, and historically in Glasgow, there've been two of them. I'll deal with the most recent first, which was during the um, poll tax civil action where there was mass non-payment of, of, of taxes and at, at least a quarter of the population, probably more, was refusing to pay their tax. Um, it was impossible for them to, to carry out this kind of threat against a quarter of the population. And, the, and those occasions where they did attempt to carry out the threat, um, the, the the popular organizations, the anti-poll tax unions, gathered crowds outside the buildings and the, 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 I mean, the Queen's messengers at arms no longer carry swords so that they were um, 
easily intimidated by a large crowd of people blocking the entrance. And on the one occasion where they managed to get in and tried to organize a, what's called a warrant sale of the person's property, they were going to hold it in order to be able to get away with it. They were going to hold it in the courtyard of an old um, combined sheriff court and prison building now disused and they'd got the woman's property in there and lots of us gathered in the entrance to tenements around the area before it was was dawn and as soon as they opened the gates thousands of people rushed out and occupied the the ground and prevented the sale from taking place. Now, that that showed that if you get large-scale popular opposition, you can prevent the enforcement measures. The, the previous case where that happened was in, in 1917, when the, the women of Glasgow organized a rent strike against the, the landlords and refused to pay rent. And again, they were able to prevent evictions by mass gathering outside the buildings and preventing uh, people's possessions being taken away. But it, the, you can defeat the landowners on this, but only by large scale action, by people being able to organize and act on it. it um, and it, to build up the organization to do that, you have to be out campaigning and uh, knocking door to door and leafleting for a period beforehand before you're strong enough to do it. It has to be a large scale organization involving thousands and thousands of people um, active to do it. You're listening to Savage Minds. We hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We depend on listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. It's one thing that was curious to me living in Britain, seeing the difference between what are leaseholds and freeholds on land, something that isn't common in many other countries. Can you uh, explain what those two mean and how that enters into discussions of workers' rights? That that now only exists in England. It was abolished in Scotland as soon as the Scottish Parliament was um, established, where, where it's, again, this is the feudal superior um, relationship. When I moved to, we'll go back to, to 1998 um, when we we were living in Glasgow uh, my wife lost her job or she we weren't married then my partner lost her job and we had um, a child another one on the way and we couldn't afford the housing in Glasgow so we moved out and bought a cottage in a, uh, a town of Lanark and the we thought okay we've got this house we've paid for it um that's all we need to worry about then 
shortly afterwards, I started to get letters from a, a firm called Justified Properties. And Justified Properties informed me that I was the feudal inferior of somebody and owed them feudal dues. <laughs> uh, I refused to pay it. And they never did anything. And then a year or two later, the Scottish government abolished feudal tenure. But the, the, the leaseholders are a relic of feudal tenure. The theoretical situation is that the monarch owns everything. The monarch then grants certain people the position of being tenants in chief. And the tenants in chief of the monarch are where or are the feudal superiors of those who live on the, the land that they're made uh, tenants in chief of. The, when cities were being built, the landlord class ensured that in the main, the, if houses were built on lands that belonged to, sorry, that didn't belong to, for which the the Duke of Westminster was the, the tenant in chief of the monarch. If an area of, of Westminster was built on, he retained the position of being the, the, the feudal lord of that area and was entitled to collect a nominal rent for it. And he would then to the, go to negotiate with the builder in the Victorian period was going to build a, a, a street of houses that th these individual houses would be, be leased, the land on them on which they're built would be leased from him for 99 years it, at, for a certain rent payment each, each month or each year. And in principle, at the end of 99 years, the land reverts back to the Duke and the people can get evicted. So it was a, a means by which the landlord class established sort of an in perpetuity um, revenue from urban development, which occurred in, in the Industrial Revolution. But also there wasn't a, ten, a central uh, land registry established until much later. Oh, there is a central land there registry. There is now, central... but that took 50 years in the making because in 1873, there was the publication of the return of owner's land in the so-called second or new doomsday book, doomsday book, which led to the failure of a push for a land registry at the time. The land registry didn't come into existence until... 1925 but paul of okay. the land uh, register that, that may be in sorry that may be in england i'm familiar with the scottish uh registry of south science which was much earlier no this is wales and wales and england yeah 30 to 50 percent of the crown tenancies today are unknown and a vast chunk of the country's acreage is held by nobility in what is commonly referred to as hidden coalitions. So in the UK, well not the UK, I'm sorry, in Wales and England, you have an obfuscation as to who owns the land by virtue of it not being in the register. Well, I, mean, I think the, the progressive par parties should uh, call for the cancellation of all the, of all the 
um, royal tenancies and reversion of all the land back to the crown estate. Um, and so the rent on the land instead of the, I mean, the, the, the tenancy in chief of the Duke of Westminster was given to his ancestors in return for being willing to raise a regiment in defense of the country or, or not a regiment, but a levy of um, troops. And so it's quite a while since the, the Duke of Westminster raised a regiment. So they're clearly in breach of their, uh, their original tenancies. So you, you could ideologically justify it quite easily. For instance, you're not confiscating something, you're just um, canceling them because they're not doing what they should do. And the Ministry of Defence has taken on that mantle as well. The Ministry of Defence has taken on the mantle, so there's no justification for um, continuing the feudal tenancies. But the the effect is w would effectively be to turn all rent of land into public revenue, because the from the 18th century, the crown lands were handed over to the exchequer in return for the king getting civil list money. And therefore, if, if all the, the tenancies were cancelled and the land returned to the crown, essentially they would be returning to the, the, the government and would be, the revenue would become available for, for general public purposes. And of course that has not happened. Instead, we have a good chunk of people, especially in England <clears throat> and in places like London and Manchester where housing is uh, at a shortage, uh, so it's reported. Meanwhile, you have a vast majority of the people who are not in possession of the control of their wages, in essence, because they have to constantly give back. A large part of it goes over to landlords, yes. Exactly. Yes. And, and I would think that in an era of COVID, that this would have been front and center in parliamentary discussions and has clearly not been the case. Uh, how, how is it then that the society, a very class-driven society such as in England and Wales, where the poor cannot have any kind of recourse then to their own continuation, really. I mean, they're going to be constantly poor from one to the next to the next generation. This is what history has shown us. Well, the, that is what the uh, Keir Hardy founded the Labour Party to end. If you look at what Keir Hardy's original um, proclamation of one of his aims was the end to end landlordism. And to an extent, that was a central objective of Labour governments up until the, the, the 70s, where they introduced rent controls to, to prevent the rise in private rents. They gradually introduced security of tenure legislation. And most importantly, they carried out mass building of public housing so that by the mid-1970s, more than half of all the houses in Britain were publicly owned and were available at non-profit making, you know, break-even levels of rent. Uh, so that was the, the social program to deal with it. And that was ended by Thatcher. And 
what we're dealing with is the ideological consequences of essentially neoliberal ideology having been internalized within the uh, the Labour Party under Blair and therefore no attempt being made to revert to what was the only programme which essentially brought down rents, which was the mass building of council houses. Exactly. And then Thatcher did something very clever to buy up her, her tenure as prime minister with the right to buy scheme, which brought in the notion that the Tories were empowering people to own their own homes, which sounds great on paper, I guess, except that the right to buy scheme ended up depleting a lot of the housing that was needed to support the working classes, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a benefit to the people who were existing sitting tenants. When they died, they, the things were bought up by speculative uh, property owners private landlords and therefore what were built as public housing end up being owned by private landlords to exploit people at huge rents. And here today where people are unable to go to work in various lockdowns in various countries as is now happening, the US is now uh, hearing that Biden might plan for them too to be in a lockdown uh, beginning the day that he begins his presidency. Um, how is any democratic society supposed to square this with equal rights? Because... Well, you'd have to count... I think, in general, the, the left is far too narrow in its focus of, of issues on which it raises demands. Um, well before COVID, I was arguing that one of the key things people should be demanding is, as I was saying, the the transfer of all land ownership or landlords into um, public ownership by reverting to crown estates in Britain. But in, in the case of someone like France, you'd have to pass a law nationalizing the land. Um, but the, and there should also be a general debt amnesty. I mean, the, the, you should just cancel debts beyond um, other than debt, debt, debts to the state, other than tax debts. Right. Um, and you postpone the tax, in the case of the COVID case, you postpone the tax debts until after, after the, um, you postpone tax collection until after the, the, the pandemic's over. Well, this is being considered by some countries because people are unable to pay taxes in the first place. I mean, it's going to become a necessity when more and more people are facing legal actions for monies they owe, correct? Yes, but I mean, the, the only way you ever stop this historically is if the people who are faced with that actually organize themselves collectively to prevent individuals being picked off. And have there been groups in, in Scotland or, well, I should say England and Wales even, trying to push back on this? The, the, on the tenants issue, yes, there has been some tenants organising in Glasgow. Okay. Um, but it's not, not at the level that has existed historically. 
Well, you, in your book, you talk about the narrowing of the wage gap. This is something that's been noticed outside of the UK as well, where the d division of domestic labor, the distribution of wages, the move away um, from the domestic economy, uh, moving labor away from the domestic economy towards what's now, you know, this idea of globalization. Um, we've seen that these strategies have failed even now in the US we're seeing the the most shocking things uh, where the right-wing party is calling for bizarrely more protections of the working class than the actual Democrats themselves which shocks me because I would think the left wouldn't have forgotten this as a major part of its undertaking historically but it seems the left has, has left the poor out of the picture, especially during COVID. Well, I mean, I, I think which in America, which is the right and which is the left party is, is a movable feast, really, isn't it? It's changed over time. And there's no reason to think it won't change in the future. But the, 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 I mean, you, you're left with the... Um, the big question, which was a question even in the first decades of the 20th century, which is why in America there's been no successful social democratic movement, social democratic party ever. So that everything is left between two parties, neither of which is inherently a left or a right wing party, which opportunistically can shift. And we're seeing, I think, more and more confusion of what the left and the right means today, um, even outside of the U.S. I mean, we're seeing, um, well, I googled you to look for one of your articles, okay? And I came across a website. I have to read this to you. Oh, it was rather funny. Um, it called you a reactionary, accused you one, of yes. hating gay men and trans-identified males. Actually, the article goes on to accuse you of hating anything and everything but leprechauns, basically. But this was Center for a Stateless Society. What happened to the left where we have leapt ferociously from a focus on material inequality, means of production and so forth, to the lack of access to the means of production even? And now we're stuck with identity politics. How did that happen, Paul? I mean, I was really laughing reading the comments uh, in that article because it seemed to me screaming the headline of the website is, you know, uh, we want a stateless society, but it's a society where there's no resonance with material reality to include what um, hate means, because clearly I've seen your comments, I've read your articles, I've listened to your, your, your videos, I've watched your videos, and there's no evidence of you being hateful or discriminatory. Um, they even take issue with your views on prostitution and the exploitation of women. How did the left get here? It, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it was a bit, I think at the basis it, it's a, an issue of what class makes up the, the parties of the left. And it was a real eye-opener for me in the early 1980s um, when I got so fed up 
with what Neil Kinnock was saying and his attitude on the miners' strike, that I left the Labour Party and joined the Communist Party. And it was immediately evident to me that there was a huge change in the class composition of the people in the branches. The, the central Edinburgh Labour Party was, had a few working class people, but it was predominantly made up of people with a, an education. When I joined the Central Edinburgh Communist Party branch, it was poor working class people mainly. And the, there were a few educated people, but they were very much a minority. Well, education isn't necessarily a negative, is it? Or was it, is it that the, the throes of power were in the hands uniquely of the educated? Well, this was something that other people had been... Um, I, 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 so slightly afterwards, I read some interesting accounts from a group called Red Action, or um, who were very associated with the anti-fascist action in, in Britain at the time, in co combating the National Front. And they were made up of, of very working-class Irish often Irish background um, workers. And they uh, formed something called the Independent Working Class Association back in the 90s. And they were say, pointing out then how the Labour Party was, had essentially become a party of the, the professional middle classes. Now this has been, uh, other people have cottoned onto this more in the last uh, five or six years when people start talking about it being a party of the professional and managerial classes. And, uh, but you can go back and, and see this issue existing in some stuff that Labriola was writing um, before the First World War about the Socialist Party in Italy. There's the same kind of um, fact that a large part of the Socialist Party in Italy, he was saying, was made up of teachers and uh, government employees. Now, these, th th this group of people have an interest in, in the state doing more, but they're not the same as the, um, the factory workers who also provided part of the basis of the, the Socialist Party. And in the case of, of Britain, the relative weights of the two social groups changed. And if you're in the um, middle classes, your main concern is social mobility and being able to move up the, um, the hierarchy of pay grades that capitalism has. And the degree to which you're interested in social change will focus on the degree to which you perceive that there are institutional obstacles to you rising up the hierarchy. So identity politics is focused on those kinds of issues. What stops a professional person who is um, of a ethnic minority or what stops a professional person who is gay from moving to the top of the, um, the managerial or social hierarchy? 
which is a completely different issue from the class issues which concerned the industrial working class, which was the collective organization against the employer. Exactly where your, your book came into play last week when I was talking with Paul Embry about this. He's a pro-Brexit firefighter union campaigner, and he holds various views that are historically on the left. One of them, he reminds me, is being the left in the UK has been traditionally for immigration controls, not open the borders. And he was pointing this out to me because it would seem to anyone who's under 30 that the left has always been pro-migration. He says this is not true. What shifted historically, both within the Labour Party and the left, in terms of how they approach immigration and how this feeds back to the problem of wages that Embry was saying that, uh, you know, unionists could control wages by making sure that there weren't unduly too many immigrants to compete against, because obviously immigrants would be paid even less. Well, this is the, the general, sorry, the, the long-term determinants of it was what I was talking about before. The, the shift in capital out of Europe towards low um, cost manufacturing centers in Asia. Uh, this is what shifted the balance of forces uh, bet between capital and labor in favor of capital. Now, the, 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 the positive aspect of that, also, sorry, that then produces all sorts of, this change in the mode of material production or, or the economic level, it's not a mode of material production, but the change in material production from actually having factories in Europe to having factories in, in the Far East means that the whole social class system and organization which had been built up by the working class around that prior organization of industry gets destroyed. And you then get the parties, which were the parties of the working class, taken over by the professional middle classes. The hopeful sign, though, is that that process of ability to shift capital to China is coming to an end. Um, wage rates in China are rising at an astonishing rate. It's no longer cheap for them to do that. And this mass industrialization of China and the um, closing of that avenue is going to produce a shift in the balance of, of class forces internationally. And it's going to force the uh, European bourgeoisie to realize that they have to carry out domestic production again, which in turn will reshift the, the, the social balance of forces in Europe. But these things take a, consider, you know, a couple of decades to take effect. Well, one of the things that brought the rates of COVID back up in places like Italy were people, both those going on vacation, but another class of people, the middle upper class that was making trips over to Romania and Bulgaria to bring back carers, workers, low wage workers for their parents, their elderly parents. So we're seeing how <clears throat> Europeans have a direct connection to even to the former Eastern Bloc countries to get cheap labor there, yes. import it back, and, and then these people, of course, are left with 
mingling um, human rights <laughs> uh, in, in certain cases. I mean, we've seen this even with the um, disastrous effects of, of people dying in, in trucks in the UK. Yes, yes. Uh, and these are all parts of what you get to in your book that this person seemed to take a dislike to you of hating prostitutes. Well, you don't hate prostitutes. You have given an analysis against prostitution, which is very much in line with what Engels himself wrote in History of the, Fi uh, the Family, Private Property, and the State. How is it that women's rights and the right to understand how prostitution was formed historically, how it is even formed today with the vast majority of prostitutes being inculcated into this quote unquote job, uh, as the sex work types like to say, is a job like any other, they're inculcated into this as children. So it becomes very, um, it beggars belief that the left is getting behind something that has its roots in human slavery. It, I mean, this kind of um, attitude is basically the in sorry the internalization of a neoliberal view of the world uh, where the, the emphasis is on individual autonomy indiv the, the naturalness of commodity exchange the naturalness of 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 selling your labor and extends to the naturalness of of selling um, your body for sexual purposes and then from that why not go on to the naturalness of selling body parts why not is it not an terrible infringement of human rights to stop pe poor people selling their kidneys uh, is it not a terrible infringement of human rights to stop people selling themselves into slavery once you start um, accepting these liberal uh, assumptions. There's no end to it. Will you address this in your discussion of prostitution? You note how brothels originated in slave society and how this fits in today with what is known as human trafficking. And as you know, much of the left yes. is caught up in reconstructing prostitution as agency under the moniker of sex work itself. So what's wrong such that the left does not examine the aspects of, of child grooming, rape, and human trafficking around the issue of prostitution that seemed to me 20 years ago to already have been well-documented. I mean, this is not new news. This is old news, right? Why, have, like, why has the, left, the Labour Party clung on to this? What is with, you know, uh, prostitution is just work like any other? Because we know that we're not seeing neurologists and lawyers rushing to become sex workers. <laughs> We're seeing people from the very dregs of our society yes. trying to eat. And, and this is across, whether we're talking about India, Bangladesh, uh, Ecuador, or, yeah. or Cuba. I mean, the, the fact is that people want and need to eat. So we have seen that neoliberalism today, not as an economic maneuver either, the political ideology of neoliberalism, people who say, I voted for Obama, I voted for Labour, but they can't seem to put two and two together when it comes down to what are human rights and the right to perhaps have food instead of um, you know, the offer to become a sex worker. Um, 
And there seems to be a, then a pour over from this, where you discuss the finance sector in your book, and you, you relate the finance sector as yet another unproductive sector, right? Why is it yeah. that this yeah. is unproductive? Why is both prostitution and financial sectors unproductive for our society? Well, in the case of, of, of prostitution, the only basis on which people classify it as work is the fact that money is being paid. So they're taking a definition of work, which is based on wage labor. They're not taking a definition of work based on does it actually produce anything? Because obviously anything that sex produces is babies. And that's not what they, uh, uh, the prostitutes clients are, are paying for. They're, they're paying so that they won't have the obligation to support any babies. So it, it, it's clearly not productive in, in any sense of continuing society. Uh, and in, in fact, Bentham, uh, I think quite accurately says that it, it had historically had a huge detriment on the, the, the growth of population since the survival rate of, of prostitutes babies was so low. Now, as soon as you take your eye off the actual just transfer of money as a definition of whether something is productive and actually look at what's being done, it, it's blindingly obvious that banking is not productive. The fact that bankers get money is undisputable. We know they've got a lot of money, but if you ask what do they actually produce, it's clear they don't produce anything. Um, the whole whole Oedipus is based on, on manipulating information. And the, the manipulation of information is only necessary because industry is privately owned. And the whole objective of the financial sector as a, is, as they put it, wealth management. It's, it's just there to ensure that the share-owning class continues to appropriate as much of society's surplus as possible. Uh, does, doesn't produce anything because a share-owning class can't survive on something produced by the financial sector. Financial sector doesn't produce anything they want to consume. What they want to consume are goods and services produced by the working class. Financial sector doesn't produce that. It just gives them a title to appropriate that. So what's the way out of this conundrum where we seem to be vinculated entirely to class by virtue of, well, they have and have nots of, of years is gone, you know, the landowners and the not landowners. Is there an argument to be made to simply nationalize most industries? Well, it'd certainly be an improvement. Um, I mean, it would be a, an enormous progressive transformation of European politics if old style labor policies around nationalization, which also the French Socialist Party used to have up until Mitterrand, um, were revived. Um, it would change the whole outlook of politics. But it doesn't necessarily have to take the form of nationalization. You could, you could simply pass a law saying that the, just as Lincoln outlawed slavery, you could outlaw wage slavery by saying that um, in, in law, workers had the right to the full value produced in the 
the company they work for, um, which would effectively transform the economy into an economy of, of basically cooperatives because they would, the, the employees would then have a legal right to the property within um, Ford or, uh, any, uh, or Amazon or any other company. The, so that, that, that would have, that's an alternative to, to act, taking them into public ownership. You should simply outlaw the, relation, the legal relation on which the exploitation is based. You'd obviously also have to outlaw, as I was saying, the private ownership of land and the, the rent relation. You'd also have to outlaw um, charging interest on, on debt. But the, all of these property relations, you know, the profit from wage labor, profit from interest, profit from rent, all depend on it being codified in law and legally they're all changeable. But it, it would take a great deal of determination of a political party to, to do it. My view is you're only, you're only likely to be able to get these things through if, if a party promises referenda on the, the issue. You promise a referendum on the, the uh, getting rid of the property of the, the, the landlords in, in Britain. I mean, nobody, is, nobody holds any great love for these landlords. I think you'd get that referendum through easily. What would be a little harder to get through, however, would be for people around the country who own multiple dwellings to rescind on the ownership of the multiple dwellings, no? Well, they, I agree they wouldn't, but I mean, uh, I can't remember which of one of my videos, I do calculations to show what um, level of pensions, what, what people, lots, some people buy them in order to live a life of idleness whilst uh, they're still of, you know, working age. Other people buy them as a, uh, form of uh, retirement income. Um, the I have done calculations in one of my videos of how much pension people could be paid if just the deductions from people's wages that are currently paid to the financial services industry um, for pension purposes were paid directly to current pensioners. Uh, and so that if, if the, you got rid of the financial services industry, you got rid of the, the private land owning, you could still provide a very good level of pension to everyone and they wouldn't need to, to hold these, these properties. So the, these kinds of reforms of um, property ownership would have to go along with a reform of pensions. So people's... Uh, security is not being threatened. But so much is skimmed off by the financial services industry that uh, if you just paid the, the deductions from people's wages, you know, the, the pension deductions directly out to current pensioners, the, 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 the real pension income would go up markedly for most people. And why have lawmakers not uh, advanced policies against this then, such that people might be better protected? It, it, it's, I, basically, it's all down 
uh, economic ideology, I think, that the, unless political parties have a different political economy, they can't form policies. If they accept the political economy of neoliberalism, you end up with what uh, Fisher called capitalist realism, that, that you narrow the, the options to those that are, are acceptable to the property classes. And therefore you, you really need um, alternative economics. You need alternative economic theory that is understood by the leaders of political parties. Uh, and this existed in various forms in the past. Obviously, the, the classical social democracy um, relied on, on either on Marx or on other people who had similar views like Robertus. Um, the mid-20th century social democracy had, had people like Lerner and K, K, various variants of Keynesianism. But all that got chucked in the bin uh, during the Thatcher period. And without any such ideology, the politicians can't think of different policies. Wouldn't COVID-19 lockdown period have been a great experimental terrain to test the waters? of something new. I mean, this is what I was really hoping for, is that the, the great chasm between the have and have-nots would have been more evidence. Instead, we had media stirring up fear about, you know, the virus and six people and so forth, but we weren't really given an opportunity to test anything new. And it it seems to me on purpose in a way, because you know, politicians in these moments might also personally have fears of well-being and so forth, but at a certain moment, don't they wake up and say, oh, wait, I've got in my constituency all these renters writing me unable to make rent. It, that is happening, that's happening. I mean, it's not happening, as I say, by national politicians. It, it, it's, it's, because the ideological controls now on the um, National Labour Party are too strong um, since they got rid of Corbyn. The voices come through via local politicians uh, and it's, which it's, it, it's somewhat harder for the central parties to control that. But it, I agree, it, 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 it's inadequate that it, it comes down to local mayors to raise this. Well, certainly we're seeing Extinction Rebellion protests during this period allowed to go forth. Obviously, certain women's groups were not allowed to manifest publicly, as I'm sure you saw that a couple months ago. Women are, are treated as, okay, another group that needs specific permissions to manifest. Um, again, the, the activists who are in favor with the liberal media are scrutinized less as to if their manifestation is breaking lockdown or not. So we're seeing a politicization of even who's allowed to speak and how, because as you mentioned earlier, the ability to organize is also being hampered by these lockdowns and the virus itself and the fear that people have. 
it's it's rational to um, do that. I mean, we we in I, I'm a member of a, a small left wing party, Solidarity, in Scotland. We we no longer have any elected um, representatives, um, but we voluntarily suspended actually in person meetings from from March because it was. Uh, obviously too risky so that people are hampered considerably by um but they can't meet up and and don't want to take the risk of meeting up so are there any lights at the end of the tunnel in this well it it is uh, it has made an important point that the state can fund things at a level which would previously have been unthinkable. Um, it has raised the current level of, in Britain, it's, it's raised the current level of universal credit and made far more people aware of just how awful the rules governing it are. People who would not normally have had to go through it have suddenly been put through it. So I think it will have an impact even when things return to normal.